Good morning again. My name is Clint. I'm the director of missions here at Desert Springs. That second song we sang, and really it's just interwoven in nearly all the songs we sing, but that second song, the one penned by Martin Luther, Mighty Fortress is Our God, it's one of my favorites, with words like, a mighty fortress is our God, a trusty shield and weapon. What comforting words penned by a man who is threatened and hated and defamed for the name of Jesus, for the sake of the gospel, by faith alone and Christ alone in a dark time in the church's history. It strikes me that in the same breath that we thank God for his mighty fortress and his protection, that we're also singing songs, asking God to send us out. Give us your strength, O God, and courage to speak, we said. Perform your wondrous deeds through those who are weak. Lord, use us as you want, whatever whatever the test. By grace, we'll preach your gospel till our dying breath. May it be so. We can hear God's glory spreading broader and deeper. That's what we exist for as a church. That's our vision, our hope. Spreading God's glory broader and deeper through worship, community, and mission. Psalm 46 carries with it the same dynamic of spreading God's glory deeper in our own hearts and broader to the world. I want to take a look at that quickly this morning. The first verse, Psalm 46, it says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. We skip down to uh, verse 6. We see a little bit of a turn in the chapter there, away from God and his people, being comforted by God's refuge, and toward the nation, saying, the nation's It's different. They rage. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. And all of a sudden, you skip down to verse 10. You see God erupting the psalmist. Psalmist's own words, God's inspired psalmist's own words are interrupted by a quote of God. You can help me with this. Be still and know that I am God. That's right. Be still and know that I'm God. How many times have you come across those words in your Bible or in your own head or in the Christian bookstore, maybe on a calendar with a nice mountain and a river and flowery font? Be still and know that I'm God. So comforting, right? We, I want to be, be careful this morning, but I also want to be clear, careful because there's a lot of comfort wrapped up in those words for God's people. But clear because I think that it might have been taken out of context in some, in, in, in some instances in my own life and maybe in some of yours. One way I know it was taken out of context was my roommate in college had it sitting right up in front of the toilet. So when you sat down, you saw, be still and know that I'm God. That is way out of context. <laughs> and Ron is faithful in the leadership course and, and for community group leaders, for other leaders in the church to say context is everything. So let's look a little closer at this context and maybe we can look and, and see this verse in a little different bit of a lot, in a little bit of a different angle, a little bit different of a, of, of a perspective. After the words "be still," yours and my biblical, our biblical and Christian instincts automatically respond with "and know that I am God." Why? Because we have been comforted by this personally and corporately. We automatically relate this to our own tendency to squirm and to wallow in anxiety when times of trouble come. And this is right, and this is good. And we should affirm this. 
Because we are, like the Israel of old, we are God's chosen people. We have trusted in Christ, and we can claim the same benefits that are expressed in the first part of this psalm and the part that says, be still and know that I'm God. We have, in a sense, been still, and we know that he is God. But in the very next breath, even before verse 10 is over, God says, be still and know that I am God. And then he says, I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. So wait a minute. The psalmist is talking about himself and his own refuge in God, his protection, even though the nations rage. But if we're not careful and we skip over like we did, verse 8 and 9, 8 says, come and behold the works of the Lord. Verse 9 says, he makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. He's destroying all the war materials. Here, God is. The psalmist has been resting in God's protection. That is designed for God's people. But the psalmist is also talking about how the nations that do not trust in God and rather resist God and rage war against one another. He's talking about them and how God is eventually going to cease those wars. And God breaks in and says, be still and know that I'm God. He's not talking to the psalmist. He's talking to the nations. God is telling the nations, be still and know that I am God, like my people are still and know that I am God. Should we be still and know that he is God? Absolutely. But we should also know that God wants the nations who are raging and warring to be still. What what is interesting here is that when the psalm was actually penned, when pen went to paper or papyrus or whatever they wrote on, we, since we're not, most of us anyway, bloodline Israel, we were the nations. We we're the Gentiles. We we're descendants of the Gentiles, the Gentiles that were raging and warring and resisting God. So in the immediate context of the passage, we are the nations. We are the nations that the psalmist is hearing from God about and saying, be still and know that he is God. But in the bigger historical redemptive context of the Bible, through Jesus, we can see that we are now part of God's people. We have been still. If you've trusted in Jesus, you've been still, and you know that he is God. Do we need to practice it? Of course. We believe, help our unbelief, right? As Ryan encourages from the scriptures often. But the point here is that God is crying out to the nations, and now as God's chosen people, the church, we are called to tell the nations to be still, And know that he is God. One commentary says on verse 10, he says this, God's goal for his chosen people is that out of them the word might go forth to the peoples of the whole world, bringing them all to live in godly peace with one another. And I would add, with him as well, through Christ. God has saved us, and his goal is to use us as his saved and chosen people to go to the nations. We need to be intentional about soaking in the gospel. That's what I love about Desert Springs Church. I love that the root of spreading God's glory broader and deeper through worship, community, mission, the, 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 the basis we build on is the gospel of Jesus Christ. We don't ever move on from the gospel. We don't ever say, well, I took care of the gospel when I was young. No, we remind ourselves of the gospel. We remind each other of the gospel. We're struggling with things. The gospel is the answer. The grace of God through Christ is the answer. We encourage one another. We remind ourselves, our families, and one another of this good gospel. We hold up high the grace and mercy of God that he didn't let us wallow in our rebellion, but he came, he sent Christ in the flesh to die a perfect death, to pay for our sins, to be raised back to life. 
prove that God was satisfied and to grow us in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. We must let that sink in daily. We must never move on from that. But we must also take the, the affection and the passion that grow out of that and turn to the nations and say, be still and know that he is God. Today I want to talk about what it means for us as a church and specifically our involvement in taking that message to the ends of the earth. I want to talk about counting the costs of global church planting because I think as you'll see, church planting among the unreached people groups of the world is the primary means by which God intends to cause the nations to be still and know that he is God. So I'm going to lay it out under four main headings. The purpose of global missions, global church planting, the promise of completion and fulfillment that God has already given us in his word, the plan for us as Desert Springs Church and our involvement, and then the price, Lord willing, he will move us to pay in order to see this happen. So let's talk about the purpose. The purpose of global church planting is the same as the purpose for global missions in general. There are three reasons I want to talk about this morning. Number one is the love for people. Proverbs 24, 11 says this, rescue those who are being taken away to death. Hold back those that are stumbling toward the slaughter. Let me ask you, what greater death and what greater slaughter is there than hell itself? I like how one pastor put it when he describes his global mission at his church. He says, we exist to relieve suffering, all suffering, especially eternal suffering. So when you hear about us sending out projects like water resource projects, which you will in September and October, and you hear about us sending out medical teams to Guatemala in what we like to call as lowercase m missions, indeed, we're loving them indeed, where we're trying to relieve temporary suffering. We want to do that, but we especially want to relieve Eternal suffering, the eternal suffering that is found in hell, that is clear in Scripture. Hell is real, and many are headed there. I don't think this uh, could be more clear than it is in North Africa. There are 39 million people, estimated population of our target country in North Africa. Only uh, 1,200 of them, they think, are Christians. And this is from someone who just got kicked out of the country and was helping lead churches and plant churches. The same couple that Ron was telling us about that's coming this week to talk in the Lord's Supper. They estimate 1,200 believers out of 39 million people. That's 0.003% Christian. Or one out of every 33,000 approximately. So imagine being a Christian and the next 33,000 people a Muslim that don't know Jesus, that don't know his saving grace that God sent him to accomplish for us. If you compare that to Albuquerque metro area, if you estimate about a million in Albuquerque metro area, then we're looking at about 30 Christians. Imagine being one of only 30 Christians in all of Albuquerque. Hell is real and many, so many, here and there, are headed to hell. This should motivate us to send out workers into the harvest field as God commanded us through Christ and to Rescue those being led away to death and hold back those staggerings toward the slaughter. But it's not our highest motivation, the love of people. Our obedience to Jesus, that's the second reason. It's a better reason even than the love of people. 
After Jesus' death and resurrection, he made it clear to his followers what he expected of them. In Matthew 28, what we call the Great Commission, he said, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is repeated in the book of Mark, in Luke, and John, and in, even in the first chapter of Acts. After Jesus resurrected, he's showing his wounds and he's telling them, go, take this blessing to the nations, take this message. So hell is real and many are headed there. And Jesus clearly commanded his people, but even those two together are not our highest calling and ultimate and paramount reason for global missions. The ultimate reason is the same reason God is on mission and that's his own glory. John Stott in his commentary on Romans chapter 1, says the following, The highest of missionary motive is neither the obedience to the Great Commission, important as that is, nor love for sinners, sinners who are alienated and perishing, but rather burning and passionate zeal for the glory of Jesus Christ. So God's ultimate desire is to make Jesus Christ known among all nations. We can see this by answering just a few questions, asking questions of the Bible and letting it answer for us. We could spend hours searching through the Old Testament for examples of this, but I'm just going to slice out of Isaiah, ask it questions like, why are, what, what are we created for? Isaiah 43 is clear. God says, bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Another question, why does God defer his anger toward his people even when they are disobedient? Isaiah 48, 9 through 11 is clear. He says, for my own name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. So we are created for his glory. He restrains his anger when we're silly and disobedient for his glory. Why does he forgive us of our sin? Similarly, Isaiah 43, God says again, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. God is unquestionably God-centered. Last question we'll ask of Isaiah. Why did, you, why did God rescue Israel from Egypt? Isaiah is clear that it says God divided. In, six, in Isaiah 63, he divided the waters before them to make for himself an everlasting name. And he led his people to make for himself a glorious name. These are just, what, four places in Isaiah. Again, we could spend hours looking through the Old Testament, finding examples of God's proclamation of his highest motivation, and that is spreading his glory, his honor, his reputation, and his fame to all people on earth. A shallow understanding of this might make us think, God's kind of an egocentric jerk, right? And he's kind of selfish. That's only a shallow understanding of it. If we dig deep and we know our Bibles, we know that God is the most satisfying being in all the universe, and he has created us to be satisfied in him alone. And it just happens to be that we glory in what we are satisfied in, right? 
be it your favorite sport team or be it your favorite food or your favorite drink or your, your, your lover, whatever it is, you glory in them and your praises rise in your heart and your praises rise with your mouth. God is utterly perfect and holy. He deserves praise and he is jealous for it and he's right for being jealous for it. He's not jealous for that which is not his like we would be so many times when we're jealous and, it, and we don't deserve it. It's a sin of, for us, but God deserves it. He deserves the praise and worship and exaltation among all nations. He deserves for them to be still and know that he is God. But let's move from the Old Testament. Let's move into Jesus. John 12 and John 17, Jesus is clear that his motivations are God's glory as well. He states outright to his followers in John 12. He says, my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. Then we see in John 17, when he's praying the high priestly prayer right before the crucifixion, Jesus just simply says, glorify your son that your son may glorify you. Over and over, the Bible reminds us that God is a jealous God that cannot and will not yield his glory in the end and that spreading his own glory is his highest motivation. Our hearts, when it comes to mission, when it comes to our own lives, should reflect this motivation. So yes, we do send people to the nations and we do go out and share the gospel because we love people and because hell is real and because many are headed there. And we do it because Jesus commanded us to, but ultimately we do it because God is being robbed of the worship that he designed us for and deserves and has purchased through Christ's blood. John Piper, Pastor John Piper, writes a book called Let the Nations Be Glad. It's at our resource center. I saw four or five of them there this morning. You could buy a copy if you haven't read it. That's what we're basing our global missions course on that starts in September. But the premise of the whole book is missions exist because Worship does not. In other words, in heaven, there will be no need for mission. Our mission will have ceased when the end comes. But for now, there is worship that Jesus already paid for with his blood, being robbed of him, both here in Albuquerque and to the ends of the earth. So our highest motivation for sending church planters to North Africa is to win back that worship that God intended and that Jesus died for. We catch a glimpse of this if we Look in Revelation chapter 5 when the lamb who appears to have been slain goes and grabs the scroll and breaks its seal. And the four creatures and the 24 elders fall down and they cry out a new song singing, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. There's a church called the Moravian Church in Europe in the 1700s. And they were the first church to send out a massive movement of missionaries to the nations. And two missionaries were called to go to the West Indies. The church raised them up and sent them out to go to the West Indies to witness to the slaves being traded there. The slave masters would not allow missionaries to come to the island. So the missionaries had to literally sell themselves to be slaves in order to get on the boat and sail away to be missionaries. It's, it's, it's documented that their family and friends and church 
were standing there as they were, the boat was pulling away and they could see their hands raised and they could hear their voices crying out, may the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his sufferings. They were sold out and they knew from God's word that Jesus had already purchased slaves in the West Indies to worship him. And they wanted the lamb to receive the reward of his suffering. So our motives for the lost, though they be a good motive, can ebb and flow because people will become frustrating. They'll, they'll resist the gospel just like we did. The work will become frustrating. So we've got to keep God's glory and the spread of it as our highest motivation for missions. That is our purpose in mission. God's glory spreading broader and deeper. Let's talk about the promise of fulfillment. We need to realize that global mission, the mission to all nations, actually started way back in Genesis. Genesis 3, we see the fall of Adam and Eve. We see the serpent hitting the scene and tempting Eve and Eve falling and Adam following. And then we hear this curse from God, the fall. But then we hear this glimpse of a promise that God is going to use the seed of the woman who we know becomes Christ to crush the head of the serpent, though his bruise would be healed or his heel would be bruised. We know that in Genesis 11, there's another curse, Tower of Babel. The pride of men is getting the best of us as it tends to do. And God confuses language and scatters across the earth. And then right around the corner in Genesis 12, God promises a man named Abram that he would bless him and that through him he would be a blessing to all nations. What nations? The nations that I just scattered. God said, I will make you, in Genesis 12, I will make you a great nation, he says to Abraham. I will bless you and I will make your name great so, you, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. What families? The families he just scattered to the nations. So it's promised to Abraham. It was promised to Eve. It's called for in the prophets. If we turn back to Isaiah, it says in Isaiah 45, turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. So God uses his prophets to proclaim it and to call for it. This promise is also anticipated and celebrated in the Psalms like we saw in Psalm 46. We also see in the entirety of Psalm 117, it's a short psalm, if you want to impress your friends and memorize a psalm, here's the one. It's only a couple of verses long. It says, Praise the Lord, all nations. Extol him, all peoples. For great is his steadfast love toward us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. There are lots of other psalms that reflect this celebration and anticipation that the nations will, in fact, worship our God. Psalm 86 Psalm 67 that was up on the screen earlier. In the Old Testament, the protocol was that the people had to go to, the nations had to come to Israel, the temple, and receive God's blessing and through, through God's people and Abraham's offspring. But in the New Testament, the protocol is that the new people of God, the church, must go to the nations to take the blessing of God, namely the gospel about Jesus Christ, to them. After Jesus finally came, the anointed one of God, to bear the sin of the world, God then used the New Testament church to send his people to accomplish his purpose among the nations. We see this in Acts 
the book of Acts, especially as Paul and others are sent out to take this message to the Gentiles. If you look at Romans 15, we see Paul has a special calling to go to places that have not yet heard. He says in verse 19 and 20, from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, I have fully proclaimed, I'm sorry, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. I memorized it in a different version. (laughs) From Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. Surely Paul doesn't think, and he's not saying here, that from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, everyone's heard the gospel and everyone has responded to it in faith. But somehow he states, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that he has fulfilled the ministry of Christ there. You can see that Paul's clear calling was to go city to city, share the gospel, see people converted, disciple them, raise up leaders, gather them together, and then charge them to reach their city and then be sent out by them to another city. This is why we're sending church planters to North Africa, because the people in our target country are considered unreached. This word, unreached, is a technical term in missiological language. It means that less than 2% of the population is considered evangelical, and we saw way less than 2% is considered evangelical Christian in our target country in North Africa. In addition, it generally means that there's not a native church that is natively led and natively supported and natively multiplying itself among its own people. It's another way to describe an unreached people group. Some mission organizations have estimated that there's about 16,000 people groups in the world defined by barriers or boundaries that are in language and in culture that must be crossed in order to reach them with the gospel. It's also estimated by one mission organization, the same one that says there's 16,000 people groups, estimates there's 7,000 that are unreached by this definition. So today, the focus in global mission is to engage and reach these unreached nations, to church plant among them. And it's worth noting that there are over 600 evangelical churches in America for every one unreached people group. So can you imagine if 600 churches would just focus the majority of their energy and resources of time, talent, and treasure, and prayer to one people group. You can see a massive movement of missionaries being sent to the reach the unreached. This is the reason that we at Desert Springs Church, leaders have limited the scope of our global missions at DSC to four core initiatives. You know what they are. If you've been here for a while, Juarez, Mexico, and the Native American tribes and pueblos and reservations of Arizona and New Mexico the Rabanala Chi of Guatemala, and the growing initiative that we have to send church planters to North Africa. This is also the reason why we want to continue to hone our resources toward the unreached of North Africa. It's not like we're leaving those other initiatives behind. We want to continue to increase our partnership with them. In fact, Lord willing, we'd love to see Achi and Native Americans with us in the field in North Africa one day if, he would, if God would make it so. So this morning we've seen that God promised to bless all nations through Abraham. He called for the nations to turn and believe through the prophets. The Psalms anticipated and celebrated the day to come when some from all nations 
would turn to God and trust in him. We saw how Christ himself, after his resurrection, sent out his followers to the nations with the gospel. We've seen that they obeyed it in the book of Acts, and now we find ourselves sort of as the continuation of the book of Acts with this unfinished task of reaching the unreached nations. Before we move on to the promise, I want to flip to the end of the story. We've seen all the way from the beginning, through the middle of the body, and now to our own context. Let's look at the end of the story in Revelation 7. Thank God that he gave us a peek at the end so we can sleep at night knowing that it's going to work. Revelation 7, 9 through 10 says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, the same Lamb that was slain. Some from every nation, from every tribe, will be there in the end, praising God with us. All that matters is, all that's left is for us to go through prayer, through sending, through evangelism and church planting to claim back what Jesus has already paid for. If this message is like a highway of church planting globally, the purpose of it, the promise of it, I'm going to move on to the plan of it here in a minute, and then the price of it. If that's a highway, I want to get off the highway and take a pit stop quickly. So let's take this exit and let's talk about something. Church planting globally, sending your resources of money, prayer, kneeling, knowing, giving, and going cannot be a cop-out either individually or corporately to do two things. One is what Ryan's going to talk about next week, church planting locally. And number two, what Ryan taught us last week from John 4, being intentional about our friends that are lost, our family members that are lost, our coworkers that are lost, building intentional relationships with people who don't know Jesus for the sake of telling them about Jesus and the goodness of God through him. So don't let getting stoked about global church planting be some sort of cop-out for these two things, sharing with the lost that we know and church planting locally. Again, Ryan will talk more about church planting locally next week. Everybody back in the car? Let's get back on the highway. The pit stops always take longer than you anticipate. We've seen the purpose of global missions. We've seen the promise of it from God himself. Let's talk about the plan of global church planting. Jesus does indeed send us to make disciples and to teach them to obey all that he has commanded. We saw that in Matthew 28. Like the New Testament church, we need to be faithful to be believers here in North, I mean in Albuquerque that spread God's glory deeper as well as sending others to North Africa from amidst our church to spread his glory broader there. What does this look like to to, to send church planters to the Arab world through our Sunrise North Africa partnership? This is what it looks like. Men must be trained and groomed by the elders here, both formally and informally through leading community groups, being trained in Bible doctrine and theology in the classroom, through practical church leadership stuff, through biblical counseling, just to name a few, as well as evangelism and church planting, specifically among Muslims. This has been happening for about two years now with the group that we're working with, the two couples. I'll introduce you to them later, or them to you later today. 
The current elders must also assess these men and see in them the gifting and qualifications necessary to be elders here before they are sent to plant churches there. They're also assessed and trained by Arab World Ministries, who has been literally working in the Arab world for 120 years. We're thankful for partnerships with Arab World Ministries. They must uproot their families. These, these, these couples must uproot their families and travel to North Africa. But first, they've got to sell their house, their cars. They've got to leave their extended family. They've got to leave their hobbies. They've got to leave familiarity, their language, and their culture. And they've got to move to France first because French is the business language in our target country. And you have to be able to operate. You have to be able to rent an apartment. You've got to be able to get a vehicle. You've got to be able to fill out applications for a visa. And to do that, you have to be able to speak French in this country. So they'll spend a year in France learning language. Then they'll move to North Africa and study language for another two years, the local dialect of Arabic, so that they can speak to people in their heart language. French is the outsider's language in a sense. But Arabic is their heart language, and we want to share the gospel in their heart language. We want them to know that Jesus speaks their language. Once they've established themselves in the culture and the language, they must establish a platform. And, and you can think identity here. When, when we talk about a platform in unreached places, we talk, we're talking about an identity for our workers there. A place to work. Something to do throughout the day. You can't just, you, some people do, but you can't just go and sit in a cafe and Hope that somebody's going to walk up to you and ask you about Jesus. You can, that's a good way to get removed from the country pretty quickly. But if you're working, and hopefully we're going to have a platform that serves people and gets us into their lives, gets our workers into their lives so that they can share the gospel with them. They'll also be hopefully sharing the gospel with people from Marifa. You guys remember the website that we've been supporting for a couple of years now through Arab World Ministries? Marifa is a website where uh, Muslims can search on Google what is Christianity? Who is this Jesus? What do Christians really believe? Marifa is one of the top hits there. It stands for knowledge in Arabic. And they'll link up with people who are seeking Jesus. And eventually they'll pass them on to missionaries in the field. So the goal is to see folks like that and folks they meet through their work and their neighbors, share the gospel with them, to disciple new believers, to disciple them through maturity, to identify leaders like Paul did in Timothy, charging them to raise up other leaders and plant new churches. And Lord willing, all of this will work. The couple that's coming here, they've been doing it for 10 or 15 years in North Africa. And when it works, and when you're known for getting people together to study God's word, and you're known for raising up leaders and multiplying churches, they will eventually expel you. So we should go in. Arab World Ministries is, is encouraging us to go in expecting that after 10 or 15 years of faithful service and fruit, we will be expelled, the folks that are going. So summary so far, we've talked about the purpose again, we've talked about the promise, and we've talked some about the plan, and even some about the price that they, the families that are going are going to have to pay. Let's talk about the price that we can help them pay as a body. We like to say in missions here, that the best way you can get involved is by kneeling and knowing and giving and going. Let me talk about those briefly. Kneeling. We need to be devoted to praying for Muslims in North Africa and for our Sunrise North Africa partnership team, our SNAP team, for our missions leaders and elders as we try to prepare them to go for Arab World Ministries as they continue to work in the field. As we pray for God to send out workers into the harvest field, we can pray this boldly because we've already seen the end. 
We've already seen that he is indeed going to reach the nations and he will fulfill his promise. But our praying and our sending are his designed means to accomplish that end. So we should be devoted to praying. We should be devoted to knowing. Intimately involved with prayer is knowing and loving the people of North Africa. The best way to do this is through the Arise Shine prayer guide. You can grab one at the kiosk just outside to the left here at the SNAP kiosk or at the Resource Center. They're for free. 52-week guide in praying through our target country, learning more about the people, what they believe, and how you can be praying for them and the work that's going on among them. Another great way is to sign up to receive SNAP email updates. You can do this using today. You can use, it, use your tear-off tab. You can just write, add me to the SNAP email update. We'll add you. We send out updates sometimes weekly, sometimes monthly, depending on how busy things are. Also, final way you can know is that families that we intend to send will likely be coming to your, to your community groups or to your women's Bible study or to your men's huddle or to the well. And they'll be there to answer questions, to share with you the vision, and to let you get to know them, the ones that we are going to kneel for and know for years to come, Lord willing. So you can kneel and you can know. Generally, because it rhymes better, we would go on to give, but I want to talk about go first. Most of us are not called to go. Overwhelming majority of us are called to stay and to pray and to pay for those who are going. There will be opportunity, however, in the years to come to go and visit these families, to give them a break one weekend with their children so that they can go off into the hills of North Africa and rest or jump up into Europe and rest for a weekend. You can go and encourage them. You can go rejuvenate them in their mission. And of course, I don't want to put too much distance between our other initiatives. If you go to the Navajo Res and you serve there, or you go to Guatemala and you serve there, you will continue to get a big view of God and of his work among the nations and his heart for spreading his glory to all nations. So going to those other initiatives actually will do much for your passion and heart for North Africa. So kneel and know and go and give. We need to be devoted to giving like we are devoted to praying. Randy Alcorn spoke during our Claris conference back in May, if you'll remember. He has a small book called Treasure Principle that changed my life. It took three months over the first three months of my marriage to read that. We were a little busy and getting acquainted and getting on with life, right? But it shouldn't take that long for a tiny little book, Treasure Principle. It's out there. They're for free. When we run out, we'll get more. It's a good investment in the kingdom, I think. He challenges us to take a radical biblical view of our money and our possessions, especially in light of eternity. A view that says every dollar I've ever had or ever will have is God's. I am simply a steward or a money manager. And a view that says, God, what would you have me do with your money? So when we roll out the details, Ryan will talk more about the details of how we plan to raise funds for church planting But just know that we're not just talking about one church plant in the Albuquerque area, and we're not talking about just one small team in North Africa. We want to continue to send families to North Africa. We want to continue to send church plants out locally. So it's not just buying into one program or project. 
This is a paradigm shift for our church. This is moving from being a church to being a church that plants churches, that plants churches, that plant churches, that plant churches. From being just a church to being a church that lives and multiplies itself. We tried to capture over the next 10 years what the cost would be. It's about as far out these days as you can budget. But again, think perpetual church planting. And if you peg it in 10 years, it's going to cost us as a church approximately $2.5 million. And this budget is entirely beyond the normal operating and mission budget of our church. $2.5 million over the next 10 years. And Lord willing, Lord willing, it'll be like Paul and the Macedonians. He said, I had to tell them to stop giving. Hopefully, God will have to tell us to stop giving. This includes sending out Carlos Griego, as, as Ryan will talk more about next week. And he talked about back in January during the State of Communion Address. Lord willing, we'll be sending him out in 2012 to church plant locally and then send out two SNAP families, one in 2013 and one in 2014. And then again, we're asking God to continue to raise people up so we can continue to push them out and start new churches both locally and globally. So Ryan will talk more about the details of how we as a body can raise these funds next week. But suffice it to say, it is going to take intentional, joyful, as we're called by the scriptures, sacrifice for us all. Joyful sacrifice from us all and faithful blessing and promise and provision from God. But it is doable. Our God is a rich God and he wants to provide the funds to send people to the nations. The only question is, are we going to be willing to release those funds? I need your help as I wrap up here. So I'm going to need you to engage your heart and your mind here with me for a second. Should have already been up until this point. (laughs) But extra effort here because it's going to take some imagination. I want you to imagine there's a person standing right here. And I'm going to call this you on the stage. So there's you in the chair. But imagine you are actually standing next to me on the stage as well. I'm going to call this person you on the stage. And I'm going to call you you in the chair. Imagine that you in the chair, you you don't have to imagine, this isn't a stretch, that you've come to know and taste and see that Jesus is good. You've heard the gospel, you've embraced it, you've trusted in him, your sins are forgiven, and he's growing you in the grace and knowledge of Christ. But for whatever reason, you on the stage hasn't heard that gospel yet. And for whatever reason, you can't, you in the chair can't get access to you on the stage you don't have access. Maybe you on the stage lives in another city. Maybe they live in another part of the city that you live in. For whatever reason, you don't know them. You can't share the gospel with them. Maybe they live in North Africa. But they need to hear the gospel. So imagine an, a third party coming and saying, I, I'll go to them. I will go and tell you on the stage the gospel, but I need someone to send me. I need someone to send me to tell them the gospel be they in another part of the city or in another part of the world. The question is, what would you in the chair, having been saved, give to send somebody to you on the stage so that they may hear the gospel and believe? I think if we're honest with ourselves, our instincts that love Jesus and know that we're saved 
cry out, everything. I would give up everything if it meant sending somebody to tell me about the gospel, right? And that's good and it's right. It says so much about God's love for us and our love for him that we're commanded to have back out of gratitude for the gospel. But it broke my heart a few weeks ago when I thought of this because I realized that I'm not ready to give up everything for someone else to hear the gospel, but I would give up everything in an instant if it were me that needed to hear the gospel. And I think it's good and I think it's right that we would, our instincts say everything. It's just like the man who was walking in the field and he found the treasure and he goes, I'm going to go sell everything. The kingdom of God is like this. I will sell everything to buy this field. Or the pearl merchant who finds the pearl, greatest one on the earth. He says, I will sell everything. And he goes and sells everything in order to purchase. Jesus said, that is what the kingdom of God is like. The question is not, do we love God? We do. If we said everything, we do love God. The question is, do we love our neighbor as we love ourselves? Imagine that's not you anymore. Now it's the person living in North Africa. Now it's the person living in a part of Albuquerque that you haven't met. Are we as a body going to be willing to send those who can go to those that we can't?